morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're studying the little epistle of Yehuda. Having said in verse 4 that the Tanakh teaches that apostates will be judged, Jude now illustrates the truth of that divine judgment will come upon apostates using another triad. He cites three historical instances that establish the certainty of the faith that awaits for those who fall away from the truth. In verse 5, he talks about the judgment on apostate Israel. In verse 6, on apostate angels. And then verse 7, on apostate Gentiles. So he's using a triad of illustrations here to prove his point. Now, we looked last week at the judgment on apostate Israel. And this morning, I want to begin, said begin to look at verse 6, um, <clears throat> with Yahweh's judgment on apostate angels. In verse 6, he says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Before we can really get into this verse, we have to come to an understanding of what Jude means by angels. So our lesson for today will be on one word in this verse, on angels. There's a lot of ideas on what angels are. Back in the early 90s, angels were really popular in America. If you can remember that, uh, bestseller lists had popular books on them about angels. Bookstores had whole sections developed to angels. NBC had a special called Angels, the Mysterious Messengers. Michael Landon starred for five years in a, uh, as an angel sent to earth to assist mortals in the show Highway to Heaven. CBS had a show called Touched by an Angel. From 2007 to 2010, there was a show on TV called Saving Grace, which was an interesting show. It was about a police, a female police detective who was a drunken, basically slept with everybody under the sun, but she called out to God one day, so this angel shows up, this scruffy guy who at will could puff these wings out of him. He kept showing up and a very weird kind of thing about angels. In 1993, the first lady then, Hillary Rodham Clinton, made angels the theme of the White House Christmas tree. And she often wore a gold angel pin on days when she said she needed encouragement. So you could just put this little pin on and, uh, you know, we'll get encouragement from it. I think among the many contributing factors to the angel craze among Christians in the early 90s was Frank Peretti's mega bestseller fiction books, The Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness which graphically depict the -the behind-the-scenes angelic intervention in the lives of believers. Well, if there's such a thing as a universal idea, one that cuts across cultures and religions, common through centuries, I think it's the belief in angels. Not only do Christians and Jews believe in angels, and the Jews regard angels as the most exalted of God's creatures, but Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, they have them too. Wing figures appear in primitive Samaritan carvings, Egyptian tombs, Assyrian beliefs. Angels litter the metaphysical landscape from ancient times to the present. Now, the New Age movement calls fallen angels avatars or spirit guides. Their human devotees practice channeling of these activities and they offer to awaken hidden powers within men. So we just see Angels everywhere. Now today, what's interesting is, you know, with all this common belief about angels, today many Christians, whether rationalistic Protestants, 
ex-Catholics or some emerging churchers see angels being merely symbolic. Just the storyteller's way of telling the story. So with all this confusion in our day about angels, I want to go to the Word of God and see what we can learn from there about angels. Just looking at the text and seeing what we can find out. This will be a study on what does the Bible say about angels or angelology. All right. First of all, the term angel is derived from the Hebrew word malach, which means messenger. Strong says malach comes from unused, an unused root meaning to dispatch as a deputy, a messenger specifically of God. So you have to keep that in mind. So the idea behind angel is messenger. And primarily a messenger of God. And in general text, when an angel appears, the task is to convey a message or do something on behalf of Yahweh. So these, for the most part, they're messengers of Yahweh. Now, Malach is the same name given to the last prophetic book in the Bible, which is Malachi, which Malachi means my messenger. And Malachi may possibly be viewed as a descriptive title of the author rather than as a personal name. Some believe that Malachi was an angel because of that title. But the book's contents, and I think in his presence among the prophets, I think makes it certain that Malachi was a human messenger. He was a prophet. All right, there's 213 uses of the Hebrew word malach in the Tanakh. And its Aramaic equivalent appears twice. So that's 215 uses. The New American Standard Bible translates 105 of them as angel and the rest as messenger. So the New American Standard Bible, Malach, is more often translated as messenger than angel. They translate it as angel when they see it as a divine messenger and messenger when they see it as a human messenger. So basically, the translators are, are interpreting for us. All right, They're saying, okay... What they really should have done is just translated messenger everywhere. You know, so we could look at it and decide because that's what the word means, messenger. And we could figure out, is this a heavenly messenger? Is this an earthly messenger? But they tried to help us out. And I think for the most part, what they have done is helpful. But since the focus of the text is on the message, the messenger is rarely described in detail. Thus, the divine emissary may or may not be some sort of supernatural being or may be just a human being. And we have to determine that by the context. We have to look at the context and determine this word itself is not going to tell us. It just means messenger. Well, let's look at some of its uses in the Tanakh and see if we can figure out what this word means. The first use of angel in the Bible, the first use of malach, is, is found in Genesis 16.7. It says, now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Sur. All right, so the first use of Malach is to the Malach of Yahweh. Now, the precise identity of the angel of Yahweh is not given in the Bible, but I think there's a lot of important clues to the identity of this angel. It seems that when the definite article, the, is used, it is specifying a unique being. It's separate from other angels. This is the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh's claim 
Yahweh's actions as his own. And that's just really interesting. When you get in the text, I want to show you just a few of these. But in Judges 2.1. Now the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal and Bochem. And he said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Alright, now notice, the, this is the angel who's saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, who delivered Israel from Egypt and who had a covenant with them? Was it an angel? Well, look at Leviticus 25:38. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. All right, let's look at these together. In Judges 2:1, we have the angel of Yahweh who brought them up out of Egypt. In Leviticus 25:38, we have Yahweh, Elohim, God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So who delivered them from Egypt? Was it Yahweh or was it an angel? Yes. Watch. The angel of Yahweh is equated with Yahweh. Exodus 3.2 The angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of the bush. Now, you know this story, right? Well, let's look at Exodus 3.4 When Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to look, Elohim, God, called him from the midst of the bush and said to him, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Let's put these two together. So here we have the angel of Yahweh in the midst of the burning bush. And in Exodus 3, 4, we have Yahweh, God, Elohim, in the bush. So the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh are interchanged in many different accounts. In the story of Gideon, we see this, Judges 6, 12. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O valiant warrior. Alright, so here the angel of Yahweh is speaking to him. But then in verse 14 it says, Yahweh looked at him and said. Alright, so you see in the same text, so okay, you got an angel talking to him, you got Yahweh talking to him. In Daniel 7, The heavenly Son of Man is distinguished from Yahweh in verse 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So here we see the Son of Man and Yahweh distinguished. But we see the Son of Man riding clouds. And riding clouds is an action that Yahweh does. We see this in Psalm 104. It says, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, O Yahweh, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. So the Son of Man is riding a cloud. And this is saying, basically, he is Yahweh. Yahweh is the cloud rider. Now, when you put all these texts together, they build a compelling compute commute <laughs> they build a compelling argument all right of the plurality within Yahweh himself now if you stick strictly to the tanakh you see a plurality within Yahweh and Jews understood this the Jews taught this until the first century when Yahweh showed up and when Yeshua was being called Yahweh, then they made, they said, no, there's not two Yahweh. So they, they saw two powers throughout the Tanakh. And this is why. 
You got this angel of Yahweh, you got Yahweh. So we see plurality within Yahweh. Now I believe that the angel of Yahweh is the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the manifest picture of deity. He shows up in, in physical form very often. Uh, Justin Martyr, Theophilus of Antioch, Arrhenius, and Tertullian all suggested that the angel of Yahweh was the pre-incarnate Christ. And the appearances of the angel of Yahweh cease after the incarnation of Christ. Angels are mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. And an angel of the Lord is mentioned in the New Testament. But never again the angel of the Lord. Because I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ, Yahweh manifest, And we see in these scriptures. Now, the phrase Malach Yahweh, where Malach is singular, can refer to human messengers sent by Yahweh. For example, we see that in Malachi 2.7. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger, Malach, of Yahweh, of hosts. So here we see that the priest is the angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord. Alright, so if you start out in Genesis and working through, after four uses of seeing Malach Yahweh in Genesis, we come to Malach used by itself in Genesis 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now, These don't appear to be human messengers, so I think maybe the translators got it right here, because obviously he's bowing down to these men, he sees something there that that seems to be different. And and if you drop down to verse 11, it, it talks about these angels, it says, the angels, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. That doesn't seem like a human action to me. You don't see men doing that. You don't see messengers doing this kind of thing. But here are these angels. They're supernatural. They have superpowers. And these guys from Sodom are trying to get in the house. And they just literally pull the men in and blind everybody. So they have great powers. Look at Genesis 28.12. He had a dream and behold a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now here we see these divine beings using a stairway that's showing that they are. this is an entryway into the divine realm. It's an entryway into the access of God. And they're ascending, they're descending upon this. Later in the chapter he says, And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than Bet Elohim, the house of God. Bet Elohim. Bet Elohim is typically used of a temple, both within and outside the Tanakh. Temples were not only divine abodes, they were also a place of divine activity as it pertained to humanity. So here we see he's in this place where these angels are transferring back and forth. He calls it the gate of of heaven. This stairway led to God's abode, the heavens. And these divine beings are coming from God and going back to God. Now, the first, so I would say they're not human messengers. They seem to be divine. They're entering the presence of God. Now, the first human use of Malach 
is found in Genesis 32.3 where it says, Jacob sent, and it's Moloch, same word, messengers before him to his brother Esau. And it seems like, you know, the translators got this right here. It's talking about a human being. This is distinguished from the supernatural messengers. Now, there are some people within the preterist movement that believe and teach that there are no demons, not now nor ever have been. There's no supernatural being called angels, not now nor ever have been. They see all the references to angels as speaking of mere human beings. All right? So to me, they de-spiritualize the scriptures. All right? In a sense, they're Sadducees. Because in Acts 23.8, it says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, nor Pharisees. Pharisees acknowledge both. So they just don't believe in angels. They don't believe in this supernatural that's going on. Now, Boltman at one time wrote a lot of things and was accused of demythologizing the Bible. I don't think the Bible is full of myths. I think the Bible is a supernatural book that talks about supernatural things. And in this verse here in Acts, it's not saying or implying that the Sadducees don't believe in human messengers. Of course they believe in human messengers. They don't believe in the supernatural beings called angels. Well, let's look at a few references in the Tanakh that I think are hard-pressed to turn into human messengers. Obviously, there's a lot of places where it's used of human messengers, more than it's used of angels. In Exodus 33, 2, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now, if that's a human messenger, he's got his work cut out for him, okay? He's got a lot of stuff to do. And how about this text in 2 Chronicles 32, 21? And Yahweh sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. He's talking about Sennacherib here. And he's wiping out all in his camp. So he returned, Sennacherib returned in shame to his own land. And when he entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. Now, angel here is singular in this text. He sent one angel. And he wipes out all these warriors from Assyria. How many How many did he kill? Does anybody know? Well, if we go to 2 Kings, it says, Then it happened at night that the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. In Chronicles it says, Yahweh sent an angel. In Kings it says, the angel of Yahweh. Again, we see these, you know, where they're interchangeable almost. Now, it's hard for me to see a human messenger in this text. Unless this text is, you know, strictly speaking, metaphorically, mystically, some sense, you know, none of this really happened, okay, then maybe it's a human messenger. But somebody killed, if we believe this text, 185,000 warriors. I believe it. All right? I just think, you know, God can do that kind of stuff, all right? Well, let's look at a couple of texts in Daniel. All right, you know, you know, the children, the Hebrew children wouldn't bow down to this idol, so they got thrown in a furnace, right? Heated it up, and when the guys that threw it in got burned up, it was so hot. But, you know, they're standing there walking around, and now there's four of them. 
All right, and Nebuch- so Nebuchadnezzar tells him to come out, and this is Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, "Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent His angel and delivered His servants who put their trust in Him." So whoever this was, he is delivering these children, these Hebrew children, out of this fiery furnace. I'm not sure how this could be a human. The other humans that tried to even throw him in died because of it. So here we see again that angels are used to help God's people. We see this over and over. You know, they seem to be there. They're either bringing judgment or they're bringing deliverance. We also see this in Daniel 6.22. My God sent his angel. You know the story. Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den because he's praying to his God and there was a decree signed. No one was allowed to. So the king's all upset and, you know, he doesn't want to do it, but he does. So he, here, you know, my God, he says, has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me. He spends the whole night there. They, the lions didn't touch him. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I've committed no crime. Now, if this is a human messenger, they had to get into the sealed lion's den. It was sealed. There was a king put a seal on it to make sure that, you know, nobody went in and out. The seal obviously was still there in the morning. So he got in there without breaking the seal, and he somehow shut this mouth of these hungry lions. This is quite a messenger if it's a human messenger. It seems kind of supernatural to me. Now, just in case you think these lions were old, had no teeth, and or weren't hungry or something, the text goes on to tell us in 24, the king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel... This is so cool. You know, these guys are coming against the people of God and, you know, they're being taken care of. You know, God's children are preserved. And it says, and they cast them, their children, their wives, into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. These lions were hungry, okay? And they, and they pounced on these people and destroyed them when they were thrown in. I think this gives us just an idea of what's in the Tanakh as far as angels. And what they are doing, their power, and we can see that, you know, it, it's really hard, I think, to put them into a category of human messengers. Well, when you move into the Apocrypha, which we don't have, but the Catholics have the Apocrypha in their Bible, in the Apocrypha you find a distinction found between good and bad angels. You don't find that in the Tanakh, but Tobit 5.22 says, For a good angel will accompany him, his journey will be successful and he will come back in good health. So they saw this idea of good angels and bad angels. All right. Well, let's move into the New Testament and look and see what it has to say about angels. The Greek word translated angel is angelos, which means messenger. All right. Same thing. Angelos is the Greek equivalent of malach. There are 176 uses of angelos in the New Testament. The New American Standard translates only four of them as messenger. So it's interesting, when it came to the New Testament, they say almost all the uses of angelos, messenger, refer to supernatural messengers. Now, I don't think the New American Standard got it right. I think they messed up, and I'll show you a couple places where I think they messed up, but that's just my opinion. So, in the New American Standard, angel is far more predominant, the translation of angelos. Alright, speaking of John the Baptizer, the scripture says, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my angelos ahead of you. So messenger here, angelos clearly refers to human messenger John. Again, it's only translated by the New American Standard as messenger four times out of 176. All right, let's look at some texts that use angelos 
as a non-human divine messenger. I think one that we're all should be familiar with anyways, Matthew 16, 27. That's a preterist verse, right? Everyone knows that one. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angelos, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. This is the heavenly messengers that are coming with Christ at His second coming. And they're coming and they're bringing judgment. I don't see these as being earthly messengers. Uh, Matthew 25, 41. Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from me, accursed ones, in eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angelos. So here we see that the devil has his angels. Yahweh's got his messengers, the devil has his messengers. I believe the devil here is a supernatural being. I believe these his angels are supernatural beings. They have been cast into eternal fire, it says. Alright? Alright, Matthew 26, 53. Or do you think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Alright, this is not talking about human messengers. Uh, a Roman legion consisted of about 5,000 soldiers, so 12 legions would be 60,000 angels. Since one angel killed 185,000, just think what 60,000 angels could do. Alright? And, and Yahweh is saying, you know, I could gather, the, I could, my Father could send these in a minute and take care of this. If he wanted to. Alright? Now let me give you some more references that don't appear to be human messengers. Here again, we see angels helping the Lord's people. Acts 5.19 But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, taking them out. Alright? So here we have this angel delivering the apostles out of prison. He's getting them out. Now, if it's a human messenger, he's going to have trouble with the guards. There's going to be some problems here. But somehow this angel does it. We get a little more insight into this in Acts 12. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Now, if this is a human messenger, how did these chains fall? He must add the key. you know. And But it gets even better in, in verse 10. It says, when they had passed the first and second guard. How'd they do that? Guards are Roman guards. They're going to not just let them walk by. they got swords. They're trained. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. That's kind of neat. First, you know, automatic door opener. And they went out and went along in the street, and immediately the angel departed from them. The angel got them out and disappeared. So, that sounds supernatural to me. All right? Acts 12.23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. This is an angel used in judgment. How a human messenger could do this, bring these worms and kill him, eat, eaten by worms and he died, I don't know that, but the angel smites him, the worms eat him and he dies. Alright, now there are a few times when I think, the, as I said, the New American Standard translators got the translation wrong. Several of them are found in Revelation. Revelation 2.1 To the angelos of the church in Ephesus write. Alright, who is the angel of the church? <laughs> it's a messenger, okay? It's either human or heavenly. But back when John Eliezer penned Revelation, this phrase I don't think would have been misunderstood as a heavenly messenger. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Shalak Tzabur, or messenger of the assembly, who was the leader in a synagogue. 
Now, one of the officers in the synagogue was the Shalak Tabor. He was the delegate of the assembly. The Hebrew word Shalak means legate or delegate and comes from the Hebrew word Shalak to send. Thus, it was easy to see how Shalak came into the Greek as angelos, messenger, often translated angel. The Hebrew word Sabor means assembly. So Shalak Sabor was a man of good character who the ruler of the synagogue would have appoint the task of reading the scripture. He was also expected to read the prayers. He was the mouthpiece of the congregation. Now Yahweh wrote to the angel who would then read this letter to the congregation. When John wrote this, the church, history tells us, was still meeting in the synagogue. So I believe that the angel of the church was a leader in the synagogue, was a common name for a leader in the synagogue or a reader in the synagogue who would read the words that were sent to them. They would read the text. They would lead in the prayers. So I think when they translated this angel, I don't think there's a supernatural supernatural messenger of the church. There's angels there that are ministering spirits. They're there for the church. But I think specifically in these texts, he's writing to the mouthpiece of the synagogue, this person who would deliver the text. All right? Well, John also uses angelos of heavenly messengers. We see it in Revelation 12, 7. And there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels war, waging war with the dragon. And the dragon, his angels, wade war. So again, we see, you know, Michael's got his angels. The dragon, Satan, he's got his angels. And there's battle going on. Uh, you know, some want to make this an earthly thing. I just, I don't see it. Revelation 17.1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Here an angel is issuing bringing judgment. They are used of God to judge men. Now, there are several categories of messengers. Another category of these heavenly messengers or these heavenly beings is that of Winged angels. Now often, you know, we, pe- people depict angels, they always have wings. Well, not angels, all angels have wings. For the most part, you don't see angels with wings, but cherubim and seraphim do have wings. Isaiah 6, 1 and 2, in the year King Uzziah, King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's in the throne room of God here, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So seraphim appear only here in the text of Isaiah. And they seem to be throne guardians. They're here praising God and guarding the throne. And they are said to have wings. Cherubim, we see in Ezekiel, Ezekiel Mentions a lot about cherubim. Ezekiel 10.8. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. So cherubim function again primarily as guards or attendants to the divine throne. They're placed as armed guards at the entrance of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out. They got kicked out. Cherubim were placed there with swords. They're not, they're not coming back into the presence of God. These are throne guardians. Alright? And they have wings. So you have angels, you know, like I said, there's different classes and we don't have that much definition about these, but we, we see these cherubim, these seraphim who are 
higher in rank, it seems to be. And then there's another term used for a rank that I think even goes above the cherubim and the seraphim. And these angels are Yahweh's messengers in the sense that these are Yahweh's heavenly counsel. Terms such as sons of God, holy ones, heavenly hosts seem to focus as angels being part of the divine counsel. As such, they are in God's presence. They are worshiping God. They are fellowshipping with God. Uh, these terms are used typically in texts emphasizing the grandeur, the power, and the mighty acts of Yahweh. And all three categories present us with heavenly beings in service to Yahweh. The text may focus on the service done or on the God served, but rarely on the servants themselves. And as a result, we got a multitude of questions about angels. We just don't know because the text doesn't tell us that much about it. But let's look at a couple questions and see if we can answer them. Where did angels come from? Where did they come from? I'm not going to ask the question, how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? Okay? We don't need to get into that right now. But where did they come from? Well, that answer is simple. Nehemiah 9.6 You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So he makes the host and the host bow to him. He created them. Look at Psalm 148, 2-5. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. And I think that's a parallelism in Hebrew. Um, the angels are the hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, stars and light. Praise Him, highest heaven and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. So He created the angels. And it seems from what we understand that all angels were created at one time. Alright, He just created them. Which means, there's no little angels. Okay? Angels don't procreate and have little angels and the angels grow up. No, the number of angels has not increased since they were originally created. He created them and there they were. Now, since they are created beings, none of us should be worshiping them. We don't worship created beings, we worship only the Creator. And in Colossians 2.18, Paul says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. There was a problem. Worshipping angels. Now, if these are human messengers, I'm not sure I get to worship here, but if these are heavenly beings that are showing up here and there doing things, it's easy to understand how people would begin to worship them. William Hendrickson says that there's evidence that angel worship was rather prevalent in the region of Colossae at this time. We know that the Essenes community leaned toward angel worship. One of the writings of the Essenes say to be careful to guard the names of the angel. Hendrick notes that in A.D. 363, a church senate was held in Colossae's sister city, Laodicea, and it declared it is not right for Christians to abandon the church of God and go away to invoke angels. So obviously there was a problem. It was going on. They were worshiping these angels, so you don't need to do that. When John tried to worship an angel, he was rebuked for doing so. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God. For the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. Alright, so angels, 
it seems they were all created at one time. They don't have little angels. They're not procreating. They're not making more angels. They just have angels. Now, angels are not ghosts. And they are not spirits of the dead. They are created spiritual beings. And, you know, people, we don't need to spend time trying to earn our wings like Clarence in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Okay? The idea is not invented by Frank Capra. Its roots go back as far as the martyrdom of Polycarp in the 2nd century A.D. and probably even further back. But there's no place in Christian theology, no place in the Word of God do we find any reference to human beings becoming angels. You don't become an angel. I don't care how good you are. You know, people say, oh, they're an angel. No, they're not. Angels are not humans. They're a separate class. Distinct from human beings. Angels are not redeemable. You don't want to be in that class. You want to be in the class of humans that Christ died for. Alright? What do angels look like? Anybody know? Anybody seen one lately? You never know, huh? Well, that's true. <laughs> in the Bible, the appearance of angels varies. Only cherubim and seraphim are represented with wings, though. Alright? Oftentimes in the Tanakh, angels appear as ordinary men. Sometimes, however, their uniqueness is evident as they do things or appear in a fashion clearly non-human. The brilliant white appearance common in the New Testament angel is not a feature in the Tanakh. You just don't see that in the Tanakh. Angels are spirit beings that are capable of appearing in human form. Now, how do they do that? I don't know. But we know that angels take on human form. We already saw this in Genesis 19.1. Look at Matthew 28.2 and 3. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone. Now, this angel comes from heaven. He comes to earth. He rolls away the stone. And look what it says. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. All right, this text describes an angel who appeared at the scene of Christ's resurrection. Now, no, I want you to notice something here. It says, his appearance, in referring to the angel. Angels always appear as men in Scripture. You don't find any lady angels in Scripture. Alright? Now, they're most often represented in our culture. When you see an angel, it's either a, a chubby little thing, you know, with wings, or it's a woman. You know? But that's not biblical. In the Bible, they are always men. Alright, the masculine pronoun is always used to speak of angels. Now, that doesn't mean that men are angels. Okay? <laughs> We know that's not true. It means that angels appear as men. Alright, let me ask you another question. Can angels die? <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. If God kills them. One commentator writes this. Angels are not subject to death or any form of extinction. Therefore, they do not decrease in number. <laughs> um, that should set off a few bells for us right away, right? I mean... The devil and his angels, we're those, they're going, they're going eternal fire. They're going to be burned up. They're going to be destroyed. Alright? But look at Psalms 82. This is dealing with the divine counsel. Verse 6 and 7 says, And I said, You are gods, Elohim. All of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. 
All right, Yahweh's speaking to some of those members on his council who have sinned. This, these council members, as I said, there are a form of messenger, a high-ranking messenger, and he says, you're going to die. Brenton uses angels in his 1851 translation of the Septuagint into English. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, When the Most High divided the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. Now, in the Septuagint, the Greek phrase angelon theo is translated angels of God. And this interpretive phrase is found in nearly all the extent Septuagint manuscripts. However, several earlier manuscripts have instead huion theo, sons of God. This is a literal rendering of the Hebrew phrase b'nei Elohim found in the Dead Sea Scroll copies of Deuteronomy 32.8. So the Septuagint translators plainly understood that the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, spoken of in Deuteronomy 32 and elsewhere, were spirit beings. And so they translated Anglos and rendered it that way several times in order to clarify its meaning. They just wanted us to understand this is angels. This is, these are angels. So he's talking about, and the Lord said they would die. So I believe that there are a number of angels that were destroyed by the Lord when he came in A.D. 70, at the time of the judgment. So I don't think we have as many angels as there once were. As we look at scriptures, we see some angels have names. Only two that are mentioned in the scriptures. There's a lot more named in the Pseudepigrapha, but two of them. And Michael, he's the head of the armies in heaven. Gabriel, he's the messenger angel. Now, one of the biggest questions I think that people have in regard to angels is, do we have a guardian angel? Do we have them? You think we got guardian angels? Psalm 91.11 says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. Now this psalm is sometimes called the soldier psalm, because it emphasizes God's protection of people in times of crisis. Three voices speak in succession in this psalm. The psalm opens with an individual proclaiming his trust in God, in verses 1-8. through Then an audience speaks to that individual and describes God's protection and care, verses 9-13. The psalm concludes with God speaking about the faithful person He promises to protect Him, verses 14-16. through But verse 11 envisions personally appointed angelic bodyguards for the faithful person. Yahweh's angels will oversee everything and protect the faithful. Now we've seen this already in some of the things we looked at. They're there and they're delivering out of prison. They're protecting people. Maybe there are some who are guardian angels. Well, uh, we have Yeshua's comment in Matthew 18, where he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So the angels are in heaven, but they're their angels. You know, the concept of guardian angels and nations, for, for individuals and nations, pervade Second Temple literature. All through that literature, we see this idea of guardian angels, and they guard nations, they guard individuals. The writer of Hebrews, speaking of angels, says this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So they're ministering spirits. They serve the saints. Look at Matthew twenty-two thirty. 
It says, for in the, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he's saying that in the resurrection, people are going to be like angels. Now, notice that Yeshua did not say that resurrected believers become angels, as some have mistakenly believed. He said that when they, referring to those who died under the old covenant age, rise from the dead, which happened in AD 70, they don't marry, but are like angels in heaven. The word like is a comparative adverb which draws a similar, but not an exact comparison. So in what way are believers in heaven like angels? Well, he says, first of all, they don't marry. In heaven, we are spiritual beings like the angels. There's no need for marriage in heaven. Marriage is for now. It's not for heaven. Secondly, Luke's account tells us that they cannot die. Now, we just talked about this, but look at what Luke has to say here. He says, For neither can they die anymore, for they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, you got to understand the context here. He's speaking of physically dead people that are spiritually alive. So the death that he speaks of, he's referring to, is any death. You can't die physically, you can't die spiritually. Resurrected believers... Resurrection brings one to a state where he can never experience death. Which is to say, will never be experienced from Yahweh. Now the angels, he says, in heaven don't die. I think it's just the ones who left heaven that are subject to death. And we'll talk about that next week. But what else do we know about angels that we can apply to us after physical death? Well, I think one thing that we learn here that I think applies to us is they're incorporeal. They don't have bodies. They are ministering spirits, the writer of Hebrews says. Angels of spirits, spirits don't have bodies. We see that in Luke 24, 39, where it says, See my hands and my feet, that as I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Since angels are spirits rather than physical beings, they don't have to be visible at all. They can be there and you cannot see them. They can be anywhere. They can appear in a body, but they can be there and not be seen. Look at Colossians 1.16. For by Him all things were created, both the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. He created invisible things? What are the invisible things He created? Well, He says, whether the thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. I think invisible here refers to the angelic principalities and powers. Do you remember a story back in 2 Kings where Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be open? You know, the servant is freaking out. We're surrounded by an army. And he said, don't worry, Elisha says, those with us are greater than those with them. And the servant's looking around like, have you been drinking? There's nobody with us. And so he prays, Lord, open his eyes. And he sees in the heavens and he sees these chariots and horses and this army in the spiritual realm. They're invisible, but he opened his eyes so he could see them. I think that tells us something about this. So angels are spirit beings. They can take on a physical form. They're very powerful. And they're often seen in Scripture judging the enemies of Yahweh's people and ministering to the saints. Maybe they still watch over the saints today. The writer of Hebrews says this, Do not neglect, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Alright, now angels here, the writers have chosen to make it 
supernatural beings. Could it be human messengers here? It could be. You could be entertaining, you know, a, a messenger of God and not really know it, referring to a priest, some prophet or something. But I think they're right in their interpretation here. I think the idea is angelic visitors. Because I think he's probably referring to Abraham and the three men in Genesis 18:2 that angels showed up and they treated those angels with hospitality. I think that's what he's talking about there. All right. Are there spiritual beings in our midst today that we don't recognize? Possibly. Possibly. Angels are invisible. They're spirit beings. But they're there to minister to the saints. Now, did this ministering to the saints end in AD 70? They're done? Going back to heaven and leave everybody alone? I don't know. I don't know if we have a reason to believe that. I'll tell you, there's been some events in my life that made me really believe something was going on. That just was unnatural. You know? And you're like, the things you don't talk about because people think you're weird when you do. You know, so you don't talk about those things. But, you know, something happened that was out of the ordinary. And I really believe that God, our sovereign God who loves us, cares for us. And he's got these spirit beings. They're there for a reason. Maybe they're here. Maybe they're ministering to us. Maybe they show up on time. I don't know. But I do know that I think the scriptures are clear that there are supernatural beings. We see them in the Tanakh. We see them in the New Testament. We see them in the intertestamental literature. We see them in the Second Temple literature. We just see these beings that are there ministering for God. Did that end? I don't know why it would have. So I think they're probably still there. Do we need to worry about it? Do we? No, we don't. Because there's nothing we can do about it. We don't know if they're there. We don't know if they're not there. We're not supposed to worship them. We just worship God and they're there as God's servants to take care of things He wants taken care of. Alright? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at Your Word. I thank You for Your grace, Lord. You know, I thank You as we see things like this. It just so encourages me of your love for us, that you have taken care of every aspect. You're there, you're ministering, you're, you're making sure things go the way you want them to go for us in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your care for us. Lord, there's so much, so much that we don't know. I pray that you would continually open our eyes to the Scripture, that we might understand it better and better, that we might understand you, Lord, better and better. Thank you, Father, for your grace toward us. Amen.